Lutheran Hour, bringing Christ to the nations. After trust had been broken, forgiveness was more than a mere formality. For Dr. Michael Ziegler, it became a blessing. Choosing to speak good words, to patch the rift, to bless rather than to curse, in this context is costly. And we'll talk about Psalm 32 with Bible scholar and author Dr. Tim Seleska. The psalm sounds so soft and gentle, but in another way, and if you look at it right, it's challenging everything that you are taught by our culture to be and the way to think about yourself. Today, here on The Lutheran Hour. Hi, this is Mark Eicher. Glad to be with you once again and grateful for your ongoing support. To learn how your gifts and prayers help to bring Christ to the nations and the nations to the church, go to lutheranhour.org. Now with a message titled, Not Just a Formality, here is our speaker, Dr. Michael Ziegler. Happy is the man whose breach of trust is forgiven, whose failure is covered. That's the opening line of an ancient Near Eastern poem that's been passed down to us over the millennia. And even though we are separated from it by some 3,000 years of time and distance, I have felt the emotion of this poem. I know what it's talking about. I remember. I remember sitting in a booth at a village inn 22 years ago. The four of us had come there that evening to talk I had thought of this as more of a formality, lip service, more or less. I wanted to get their blessing, to marry their daughter, Amy. I didn't think it was necessary, but Amy insisted. In my mind, it was a formality because we had already gotten their blessing a year ago when we had gotten engaged the first time. So now this was just a matter of getting their blessing again but I don't think I understood what a blessing was and is. Like I said, this technically was our second engagement. We had broken up, called it off, canceled it just two months before the wedding day. She had bought a dress, picked a venue, printed invitations, and then it was over before it had even started. Now we were just trying to put all that behind us. We had changed our minds, decided that we did want to get married. And though, at least from my perspective, we didn't need it, here we were asking for their blessing. But I had not yet considered the matter from their perspective. Doing this is a little easier now, after 22 years of marriage, raising four children, two of whom are over 18, I have a better sense of what it's like to be sitting on the opposite side of the booth. See, I had hurt them. Not by anything I had done or said, but for what I had failed to do. And I didn't understand it until I considered it from their perspective. After Amy and I had called off our engagement, I stopped talking to her parents. I just stopped. After dozens of dinners at their home, after being welcomed into their family reunions and birthday parties and game nights, or just to stop by on a Saturday to do laundry, after they had become like a second set of parents to me, I just stopped talking to them. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I was immature or embarrassed or that 
I just didn't want to hear from them at the time. And this hurt them. So this wasn't just a formality for them. This was about repairing a breach of trust, restoring a rift in a relationship, being a family. Michael, they said, you didn't even call us. Why didn't you come to us? Why didn't you talk to us? And all at once, sitting in that booth in the village inn just off the interstate, it hit me like a wave of regret, a, a flood of guilt. In that moment, I knew that I had hurt them and could never forgive myself. Looking back on this, I believe this was a turning point in my life. Things could have been different from here on out. What had started as a rift, they could have made into a permanent fault line. What began as a breach, they could have held on to as an unforgivable failure. They could have nursed a grudge until we all drowned in its flood. But they didn't. They chose to bless rather than to curse, to truly bless, not just a formality. They chose to restore the rift, repair the breach, and cover my failure. They confronted me, explained how I had hurt them, and then decided not to hold it against me and not to withhold their love. So to this day, I know the truth of that ancient poem in my bones. Happy is the one whose breach of trust is forgiven, whose failure is covered. Although, happy might be a misleading translation. In many translations of the poem, the word used is blessed. Blessed. But I went with happy first because I wasn't sure we used that word enough in everyday situations to really sense the meaning. Although I suppose I did just use it in the story that I told you. I had wanted their blessing. I had been treating blessing as a formality, an empty word, but they knew that there was more to it. To bless someone is to speak good words over them, words that come with commitment and to be blessed is the state of having those good words spoken over you. And sometimes having those words spoken over you make you feel happy, but not always, or at least not at first. Either way, the blessedness this poem is extolling is not dependent on our feelings. It depends on the one speaking the blessing. The poem comes to us from the Psalms the songbook of ancient Israel, from Israel's most famous psalmist, their favorite singer, songwriter, and ruler, King David. David speaks of the blessed situation that comes from having good words spoken over you despite your failures. But it's more than that because it depends on whom is speaking the good words. It's one thing for a stranger to speak good words over you, and it's another thing entirely if someone close does the same for you, your future in-laws, for example, that's because in a close relationship like that, a relationship with commitment, a transgression, a trespass, it's not just a broken boundary or a broken rule. It's a breach of trust, a rift, a betrayal. A transgression in a close relationship hurts more and costs more. So, choosing to speak good words, to patch the rift, to bless rather than to curse, 
in this context, is costly. And in this poem, David talks about the tremendous impact these good words had on him. Here's how it starts, as recorded in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose guilt is covered. Blessed is the person for whom the Lord, the God of Israel, does not count his guilt against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, because day and night your hand, O Lord, was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I will acknowledge my sin before you, O Lord. I will not hide my guilt. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. For this reason, let everyone, everyone who is faithful, pray to you upon finding out. Surely, in the flood of great waters, they will not come near him. You are a hiding place. You're a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I said that I could relate to this poem, that I could feel the emotion, and I can sometimes. But that wasn't always the case, and even today it isn't always the case. Sometimes God feels distant and maybe you can relate better to that sentiment. And this poem, this in-your-guts intimacy with God, this closeness, sometimes torturous, sometimes joyous closeness to God, it sounds strange. The poet is clearly concerned about God. You might even say obsessed. What God thinks about him is more important than anything else to him. His relationship with God is the, the water main of his life. It supplies everything in the house. And such intense personal dependence on God is rare, even among the religious. Even religious people often treat God as a formality. The man upstairs who mostly minds his own business and lets you mind yours. Or God is in the background, part of the help, there to Answer prayers like a butler or a janitor, or like a doctor. He's there for emergencies only. Or for the less religious, God is absent or non-existent, like a father who skipped town. These images for God may express your sentiment or mine, but they would not satisfy our poet. For him, God isn't just the, the water main of his life, but the foundation, the roof, the four walls, the fireplace, and the family around it. God is the vital center of his life, closer than a mother or a father, more intimate than a spouse. You are my hiding place, he says to God. You surround me. And it sounds strange because it seems to go against so much of everyday experience. God Seems absent, doesn't he? I can't see God. I don't hear his voice audibly. 
I don't smell his aftershave or the home-cooked meal that he's made. I don't feel his hand on my shoulder. Or maybe I do. The poet says that when he kept silent, when he wasn't talking to God, trying to cut God out of his life, he was miserable. And this misery, he realized later, was God's hand, heavy upon me, he said. Recently, I was talking with a friend who wouldn't normally consider himself a religious person. For the most part, he has lived as if there is no God. And for the most part, he lives what should make for a happy life. He's got steady employment, plenty of money. He lives in a nice house near the beach. He enjoys good friends, good food, good times. Recently, I asked him, How are things? Empty, he said. Like a well dried up in the heat of summer. Empty. I have all the things that should make me feel happy, but it still feels empty. Our poet might say that my friend is feeling the hand of the Lord heavy upon him. Not for any single sin or transgression he's committed, although, like you and me, he's got plenty of those, but that's not the source of the emptiness he feels. The poet would say that it's the rift in the relationship with the one who created him. And maybe you feel it too. Our poet thinks of life in this way because he's heard and read and studied the Torah. That is, the first five books of the Bible, starting with Genesis. The Torah is a long and complicated account, but one way to summarize it is this. It's about God the Creator, who chooses to bless His creation, who chooses to speak good words over and into and through His creatures, ultimately through His human family Israel, even when they treat His blessing like a formality. Which is one way of summarizing the recurring problem revealed in the Torah. God's chosen family, Israel, treats His blessing like a formality like a brief exchange in a village inn just off the interstate. And when they did that, when we do that, when we let silence stand between us and God, when we let the words go unspoken, we are like David in the psalm, a, a dried-up desert, a home cut off from the water main, a son separated from the family. So God confronts us, explains that we are hurting only ourselves, and that he chooses not to hold it against us. He chooses to speak good words over us, words of forgiveness, words of blessing. And this is no formality. And David cannot contain his discovery. He's got to share it with us, with you. He has found forgiveness with God, and he has to share this blessing with everyone. He says, let this be for all the faithful. For all who have faith in God. Some translations say godly, that is, all who look to God and rely on God. Let all the godly pray to you at a time when you may be found, which is right now. And then, after he says to God, You are my hiding place, you save me from trouble, you surround me with shouts of deliverance, he talks to us. He says, You, you who are hearing this or reading this, let me instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. Let me counsel you with my eye on you. 
Do not be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad, be happy in the Lord, and rejoice, you who are right with him. Shout for joy, all of you whose heart is upright. And listening to the poem, it's hard to tell if we're supposed to be hearing the voice of the poet or the voice of God. Because David, remember, is part of the family, God's family, Israel, the family created to speak for God, to be a blessing to every other family in the world, and to bring them in also. But as the Torah and the rest of the Bible tell us, even Israel made God's words a mere formality. So, when the Word of God came, in person, Jesus, the Son of God, He confronted them. Jesus told them, You honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. But they didn't get it, didn't understand it, or didn't want to understand it. Maybe it was immaturity or embarrassment or that they just couldn't stand the truth Jesus was speaking. So they betrayed him, abandoned him, tried to silence him by crucifying him. And we would have done the same had we been there. Looking back, this was the turning point for Israel and for us. Things could have been different from here on out. God could have made this rift a permanent fault line. He, he could have nursed a grudge until all the world was cursed forever, drowned in a flood. But he didn't. God chose to bless rather than to curse. God covered, repaired, and restored. He raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus confronted his people explained how they had hurt him, how much it had cost him, and that he wouldn't hold it against them, that he would never withhold his love from them. Those who believed became his family, God's family, once again. And like David before them, they had to share this blessing with everyone. And that's why I'm talking with you today. God's good words for the world through Israel in Jesus, through his family over the centuries, have come to me. And I'm sharing them with you. That's what my future mother and father-in-law were doing for me. When they spoke those words at the village inn that night 22 years ago, these words were more than a formality. They were four more than just a wedding, just a marriage, just a single family. They were sharing God's blessing in Jesus with me, a bigger blessing they had received from their parents, their pastors, teachers, friends, and, and from each other. And they were passing these good words on to me. So I'm sharing them with you. 
Maybe it's been months or years since you've heard from God. Maybe you've never heard. Maybe you heard from him yesterday and like David, you can't stand even a moment of silence between you. Whatever the case, would you hear it again? In the name of Jesus, whatever you've done or failed to do, all is, all will be forgiven. In the waves of regret, in the flood of guilt, he is your hiding place. He gives his blessing, not just a formality, but a place in his family. Amen. You're listening to The Lutheran Hour. You'll find free online resources, archived audio, and more at lutheranhour.org. Once again, here's Dr. Michael Ziegler. We're visiting with Dr. Tim Seleska, a professor and an author of a commentary on the Psalms of the Old Testament. Welcome back, Tim. Thank you, Michael. Happy to be here. Tim, last week we started talking about Psalms as poetry, and we discussed questions like, why is there poetry in the Bible? Why wouldn't God stick to more straightforward speech? Could you briefly recap what we've said so far? Yeah, I thought that uh, one of the main things that drew me to the Psalms was the complexity of language that can lead your mind down many different avenues. And so that's one of the reasons I think we have poetry. It leads us down interpretive paths that uh, can produce wonder and awe and comfort, sometimes distress, um, all of those things as we make our way through them. Something that helps me understand that is when I think about truth as not in the first place a statement, but truth is a person. Like Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so the scriptures aren't just giving us information, they're inviting us into a relationship with a person. He is the truth. One of the ways that the Psalms bring us to that complex truth is through the use of a language device often called metaphor. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about metaphor, maybe just start with a definition. What's a metaphor? How do you recognize one in the Psalms? That uh, a metaphor strictly, you know, you compare one thing to another thing. So if the Lord is my shepherd, and he's the one leading me, what does my life look like? Does he, is he really like that? Or do I really live as if I'm in charge of my own life and making my own decisions, see? Do I actually live by another metaphor? Or am I uh, thinking about my life as being led like the psalmist is? If I'm not, why not? If I am, how does that look? See, those are the kinds of things that I like to begin to think about and that the imagery of the Bible starts to uh, enable for us very beautifully. I'd like to talk more about that. First, I want to register a a negative reaction Mm -hmm. someone might have to the idea of metaphor. And you said you would delight in the complexity of language. Other people want things to be more straightforward. They Mm -hmm. don't like if something has multiple Mm -hmm. meanings. And so maybe they hear this talk about metaphors with some suspicion. You Mm -hmm. know, metaphors are apt to be hijacked or taken yeah. in the wrong direction, or maybe it's, it's even a less than truthful way of speaking. It's just sophisticated lies or something like that. So, but clearly God uses metaphors in his scriptures and the Psalms. 
and he sees something redeeming about them. What, what is it that's redeeming about metaphors? Boy, you've asked a whole lot of questions there. First of all, about it being sophisticated lies. I kind of react strongly against that because even science speaks in terms of metaphors and analogies in order to get their ideas across to things, right? It's a way that we – that helps shape our thinking um, and gives direction to our thinking. If you begin to think what is the m- meaning in life – that's too broad a question to answer. But if you ask your, if you use the metaphor, life is a journey, now you have a direction to go. Oh, that means there's a goal. wonder what the goal is. So we're always being shaped by always. metaphors. Yeah. And if we're not being shaped by the metaphors of the Psalms and the Bible, then yes. we're being shaped other, by other, other ones. Exactly. So Good. you started talking about the Lord is my shepherd. Mm-hmm. And you, you, in your commentary, you mentioned this other oh, yeah. metaphor yeah. of I am the captain of my own soul. Right. So those are metaphors right. in conflict and right. are going to shape us in different ways. The Psalm is, sounds so soft and gentle, but in another way, and if you look at it right, it's challenging Everything that you are taught by our culture to be and the way to think about yourself. What do you mean? I'm being led? What does that mean? Well, that means you're not in charge of your life. That means you got to trust someone else that they're leading you where you – well, how do I do that? You see, how then do I think about my work, my vocation, my job, my family, everything in terms of that metaphor? See, that's not a question easily answered or quickly answered. It's challenging. And the psalm, then you can keep coming back to it as a reminder, as encouragement, as a place of meditation and contemplation and relaxation as Christians. Who are we being led by? Where is this person, this God leading us, the Lord? What does it mean for us? The psalm challenges you to rethink your life when you start to hold it up to other pictures and images of what life is supposed to be and even pictures of success versus this picture. See, those clash. Mm -hmm. Um, I hope everybody can see that. Yeah. To hear more of our discussion with Dr. Tim Seleska, go to lutheranhour.org. Now Dr. Ziegler leads us in praying the Lord's Prayer. Taught by Jesus, trusting in his promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you peace. Amen. The Lutheran Hour is made possible through the prayers and gifts of our faithful listeners. To learn how you can support and extend the worldwide outreach of the Lutheran Hour, go to lutheranhour.org. And join us next week when our topic will be the problem of praise. This has been a presentation of Lutheran Hour Ministries.